Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They lay down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Today on the American Valor Podcast, we have a, a very special guest, Mr. Jim Morris. For those of you who might have seen the movie, The Rookie, uh, it's based on Jim's life and his pursuit to go back to the MLB at age 35. So, Jim, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely, Tyler. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your story and your background and, and ultimately what led to you making it back to the MLB at age 35? Man, how much time do you have? <laughs> we, got it. we got it as much as you have. <laughs> Wanted to play baseball from the time I was five. And my dad was in the military. I made friends by playing baseball. Um, the movie showed that my dad and I had a very difficult relationship. It was way worse than that. It was not G-rated, I'll promise you. Physically, verbally abusive. But in between those white lines of that ball field, I could be the kid I was supposed to be. And so I fell in love with baseball. When we lived in California, I loved the Oakland A's and uh, Vita Blue, and we moved to Connecticut. I love Boston and Louis Tiant and Fred Lynn and Carl Yastrzemski and just love the way the game was played, love guys who smile while they're playing. And so for me, baseball was it. I played every sport, but baseball was my favorite. Jump ahead, go to Ranger Junior College for a semester, get seen by a scout, and that's kind of funny. Jack Allen was our, our coach. And um, – he came up to me before the game. He goes, do not throw the ball over 80. And I said, all right, now I know. Okay. And so I throw like three pitches. The third one still has not landed yet from 1982. <laughs> and so on the fourth pitch, I wound up and I threw a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. And he calls timeout. He walks out to the mound. He's looking at the ground. He won't even look at me. He goes, well, you screwed me. And turned around and walked off. I had no idea what he was talking about. But there were like 17 scouts in the stands that day. And Milwaukee Brewers drafted me in January of 1983 at 19. 
five and a half years, six surgeries in minor league ball, decide to quit. Dr. Andrews talked to me one day. He goes, I can fix it and put you back on the field, but the decision is yours. What do you want to do? And I said, it's time for me to grow up. I've been fighting you guys and you doctors who told me to take a year off at a time when I had Tommy John and shoulder surgery, and I, I wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't listen, and so I need to move on. Maybe I can find a group of kids and coach them. Went home, went to college, ended up teaching and coaching, and fell in love with baseball all over again. Fell in love with being able to teach kids what baseball has meant to this country through our entire democracy, and great kids had a great time coaching, end up at Reagan County in Big Lake, Texas. And just for your audience, there is no lake in Big Lake, Texas. Don't go looking for one. And I inherited a group of kids who had won one game each year for the three years before I get there. And I had eight kids show up for the first season of baseball. And so I begged, borrow, and stole two more kids. We had 10 kids that first season. And I would love to tell everybody that you guys – having your listening audience that I taught them everything about the history of baseball. But that first year, we had to learn how to do everything right. We had to learn how to be a team. We had to learn how to wear our uniforms properly. We had to learn how not to talk to the other team. And the only things that we were going to say to each other were positive things. We're going to build each other up. We're going to have fun. And so we didn't learn a lot about the history of baseball at first year, but we won 10 games and those kids Bought into the program. The next year, I had 63 kids come out for my baseball team. So I had a varsity, a JV, and two freshman teams. But they overheard one of the coaches talking to me one day. And I didn't even know the kids were in listening distance. And this guy is looking at me. He's going, you're wasting your time with these kids. These kids are losers. They're never going to amount to anything. Their parents are losers. They're never going anywhere. They're probably not even going to graduate from high school. So if you think you're going to win with these kids, you're wrong. And then he put his finger in my chest. He goes, and you. You may be a great baseball coach, but you're always going to come in last to people like me because I know how to step on people. And I thought, wow, two of my kids hear that. That's where the movie starts. Right after the nuns, we play two games and we just, we get run ruled both games. And after the second game, I stand on home plate. I send the kids down the left field line and I'm not trying to offend anybody, but my grandparents instilled a lot of faith in me. I just said a prayer. I said, what can I do? to help these kids realize that they're worth something? How can I get them to dream? How can I get them to chase something they don't even know they want yet? And the answer was simple. Go down there and teach them the things your grandparents taught you. And I walk down there and we start talking. What ends up happening is we make a bet. If we win a district championship, you try out again. Now you have to look at this in a mirror. I'm looking at myself. I weigh 260 pounds. I've had nine surgeries. All their moms make fresh homemade tortillas for me every time we get on a school bus to go somewhere. And it is not a plain diet, maybe a scouting diet. And I took the bet and I, I knew I would embarrass myself if they won, but I wanted these kids to see that if I was asking them to do something that I was willing to do something. And my grandfather taught me that he goes, don't ever ask anybody to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. I said, I'll take the bet. Well, they bought into it. And these kids who could not even hit me at the beginning of the season were winning all these games and they're hitting me all over the field. And I can't get 16 and 17 year old kids out. And now they win and I got to go find a tryout. And I thought, this is going to be more embarrassing than I thought, man. And I go to the tryout, hired Payne 
university. I've got my kids eight, four, and one. Nobody will even play catch with me. That's the old crazy guy out there. Don't talk to him. And uh, I go up to the sign-up table, and Doug Gassaway, great scout, is there for Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And he looks up, and he goes, how many kids you bring the trout? I said, I brought three. And I looked down at my kids, and he goes, no, two tryout. And I said, I brought me. And he goes, you're kidding. I said, no. I said, I made a bet with a group of kids that if they did something nobody thought they could do, I would try to do something I know I can't do. It'll be embarrassing. It'll be humiliating. You'll get a great laugh out of it. But I'm doing this. Either you're going to let me throw or I'm throwing for somebody else. But I made a promise and I'm doing this. When I get done, he goes, why didn't you just shave your head like every other coach? I'm like, dude, where were you three months ago? Like, you could just save me a lot of trouble. And he goes, you're going to try out last. So I had to wait four hours. Everybody ran hit through and then the pitchers pitched and the catchers through the second third and everything else and he finally calls me out the mound hands me a baseball he said how many pitches do you need to warm up I said to embarrass myself none I would just like to pitch quickly run off the field hopefully remembering to grab my one-year-old on the way to my car and he giggles at me walks back he picks up his radar gun and the young kid catching me gives me a sign for a fastball I wind up I throw it and I'm like I'm 35 and fat. I'm like, that is a good pitch right there. And I look over the catcher's head behind the screen as Gasway shaking his radar gun. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't even throw hard enough to register. This is worse than I thought. I want to sink into this mound right now. And all the young guys do like 20 pitches. When I get up to 60, I'm like, yeah, they're making fun of the fat old guy, and that's me. And one gun turned into two, two turned into three. But the first hint I had of things were going right was he looked at this kid who had already put all his stuff up. And he said, go get a bat and get in the box. And this kid looks at him. He's like 21. He goes, you want me to get in there against that? I thought, I'm either doing really good or really bad. We'll see. I get done. 19-year-old kid runs up to me. He goes, hey, sir. And hurt my feelings. And he goes, you threw better than anybody today. I said, son, that's because nobody here could throw. He goes, no, you had him talking. I said, I'm sure I did. Thank you. And he runs off. I get my kids in the car, turn the air on. It's Texas. It's 9,000 degrees in the summer. Gas away. The scout meets me in my car and he goes, I remember you. At Ranger Junior College, you were a football star. Everybody wanted to make a picture out of it. I said, yes, sir. He said, Jimmy, back then you were tall and thin and he threw like 88. I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, I don't know what you've done your time off, aside from eat. But the first pitch you threw without warming up was 94. Everything after that went up to 98. Now, as a man or a woman, if somebody comes up and goes, you are throwing 98, there is a happy dance going on in your head, right? But as an educator, the first thing that runs through your mind is I have been throwing 98 miles an hour at high school kids. I'm getting sued is what I'm getting. And... He said, look, you're old. And I said, well, thank you. He goes, you're not 35 anymore. You're 32. I said, hey, can I come back? <laughs> Maybe I'll go back 28 or something. And he goes, don't be surprised if you get a phone call. I said, cool. I drive home, hour and 10 minutes, 12 messages on the phone. They want me to come back in two days, throw again to see if I could actually throw that harder if my arm had fallen off. I call my high school kids. I said, look, I got this job in Fort Worth at this great big high school and the opportunity to work with more kids in a bigger environment. I have that in my pocket. I said, but this scout wants me to come back and throw again, but this is something I failed at when I was younger and I was supposed to be talented. And they said, coach, you told us if we ever 
had our dream in front of us. You chase it no matter what. And I said, I was lying. And they, they giggled. And then two days later, my three kids again, half my baseball team shows up. We go to the tryout. It's raining so bad. Let's put it this way. There was lightning everywhere. I would not have let my kids near the field coaching. But I've got my three kids, half my baseball team, and half a Howard Payne out there waiting for me to throw. And the catcher for Howard Payne doesn't show up. He is giving a tour this time. And so the coach catches me. And I've got metal spikes on. He's got gear that has metal all over it. He's got spikes on. They have to hand me a brand new baseball every pitch because I'm sliding up to my knee in mud. It is pouring. I get done. 98 every pitch. Sign a contract. I took a pay cut from teaching to play minor league baseball. When you take a pay cut from teaching, you are poor. Go to rehab camp. Best diet I never want to be on again. 30 pounds in three weeks. They have me running. They have me doing everything else that I always had everybody else doing. I'm not making the decisions now. I am a decision. Double A for three days. Triple A in Durham for two months. And then September 18th, 1999, I get called up to the big leagues in my home state in my favorite ballpark that they somehow think needed to be redone. And I am making my debut at the age of 35 with everybody I know and love in the stands. I get to see my kids for the first time in three months. I get to see my high school kids. Kids I coached against. Coaches had gotten school buses and driven all night to get to that afternoon game that day. Johnny Oates, the opposing manager, God rest his soul, and he said, I'm going to let everybody in today that knows you. So he let 150 people in the game that day that had ties to me. And that was amazing. What a classy, classy person. Sit in the bullpen for eight hours talking to Roberto Hernandez and Rick White, pitchers at the time for Tampa, and I'm taking it in. I've thrown three days in a row in the AAA playoffs. I'm like, there is no way they're putting me in the game. Eighth inning, they're like, warm up. And I'm like, all right, I can warm up in front of 40,000 people. That's cool. Two minutes later, I'm in the game. And I have to tell you, when I made that run from the bullpen to the mound, it is one of the best moments in my life. Because as you open the door from the bullpen to run in, you're seeing all the colors. You're smelling all the smells of baseball, popcorn, beer, hot dogs, all of it. And as I got closer to the mound, everything just kind of narrowed down. And I didn't hear anything. And I didn't see anything. Larry Rothschild, our manager, and John Flaherty, my catcher, are talking to me. And I do not recall what they said. Roberto Hernandez goes, what were you laughing about on the mound? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, they were talking about you on the center field screen. They had your picture up and they're talking about your teaching career. He said something to you as he handed you the ball. What did Larry say? I said, I have no idea what that man said to me. I was petrified. And Royce Clayton is the first guy I face. And, you know, in the movie, people go, what is the difference between movie and the real life? In real life, I struck him out in four pitches because he fouled the third pitch off over the first base dugout. On the movie set, we tried to get the actor to foul off the ball for eight hours one day, and that's when John Lee Hancock, our director, turned around and goes, you know what? You struck him out in three pitches. I said, cool. What an incredible time. 
I mean, let's go back to before the game and I walk into a clubhouse where there's Wade Boggs, who just gotten his 3,000 hit a week or two before, walks up and goes, that is one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life. And I'm looking at him. I'm still a coach and a fan. And I'm like, you're Wade Boggs. You eat chicken. And he died laughing. He walked off. Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco, just incredible group of guys who open arms, they let me in. And it was just an incredible time. And, you know, I gave up a home run, I think, like my fourth or fifth game. And Gerald Williams, our center fielder, goes, hi, I'm Gerald Williams. I didn't want to talk to you till now because I thought you were inhuman. <laughs> so I gave up a home run. He talked to me. And baseball is such a great game. And if I would have gotten that dream at 19 – I would not have appreciated it like I did at 35 because you go through life and you make mistakes and you fall and you have to get up and you chase another dream. The dream you start chasing may not be the one you end up loving the most. And then that dream comes back to you because of a group of kids who, when you push them, they pushed you. Otherwise you never would have tried it again. And then you get it. Incredible. What an incredible journey. So I have to ask one question along the lines of what's real and what's not in terms of the movie in real life. Did you actually try out in jeans? No, I had softball pants on. Okay, because in the uh, movie there was jeans. I was like, no way. No, I had softball pants on with an elastic waistband and my gut hanging over it. Thank you, Dennis. You made me look better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess we have a couple. We might have a couple more questions of what was real and what's fake. We'll, we'll just do them real quick. Did you really throw the ball past the, uh, the speedometer sign? You know what? I taught science and I was not smart enough to do that. And uh, I got two stories with that. Our director, Mike Rich, gets out one day. He says, stop. He throws a ball at this speed limit. sign. It lights up. And I'm like, I am dumb. I did not even realize you could do that. And then after my career, I go back to my hometown and I meet all these DPS guys that I played softball with years before. And they're like, man, Every speed limit sign in this state is dented because of you. <laughs> cool stuff. Did they actually put hair on the field to keep the deer away? Yes, we did. And it works. So one of the things I want to, I mean, the only part of your story I could really relate to is giving up a, a home run that still hasn't landed. Uh, Colin and I used to play together and I gave up an absolute moonshot. But, you know, as, as a coach, I, I also did a little bit of coaching in high school what does it mean to, to fulfill your dream after, you know, the, the players fulfilled their part of the bargain and you saw them chase the dream? That was probably almost as rewarding as ending up making the team, I feel like. Absolutely. And now at 56, I look at these guys and they're 38 and 39 now. And we have a foundation where we go to inner city schools and help rebuild the sports program to get kids off the streets and back onto the fields. And these kids are still a part of that because they want to be a part of that. And it, it means it's incredible the things that they have done. And when I pushed them, they pushed me and we became better together because of that. And that's why I go, it's not a me or I thing. It's a we thing. We're a team. And, you know, we represent a whole lot more than what we think we do. Of course, we represent ourselves and our family, but we represent our team. We represent what goes on in between these white lines, our school, our city, our state. We represent a whole lot. And those kids bought into it and we moved on together. And it's just been an incredible journey watching those kids grow up. And now they've got kids the same ages that I had when I went and tried out. It's pretty cool. 
I mean, I feel like that's every coach's dream to be able to build a bond with your, your players and stay connected with them throughout the years. Um, did any of them end up pursuing baseball after high school or no? You know what? Nobody played baseball after high school, but that was not the thing. Almost all of them, 60 out of 63 got college degrees, and that was what was important to me. And I didn't take education seriously through high school. All I did was get good enough grades to get on a field. And I wanted those kids to achieve something more because when I went back to college at 24 through 28, I realized education can open doors and you can dream. And not everybody's cut out for college. I get that. You, whatever it is that you have in mind, education for me was key. And I wanted those kids to have that option. If you want to go to college, go to college. Work, chase that dream. And whatever door you open, you're going to have a better shot because now you have so many options. When I grew up, the only dream I had was I'm going to be a baseball player. I'm going to be a baseball player. And that's what I told everybody. And it didn't work. And then I didn't have any more dreams because that was my dream. And then 15 or 20 years later, those kids bring that dream right back to me. That's pretty cool. You touched on it a little bit when you were, uh, you know, telling your story, but could you go back and talk a little bit about yours and your grandfather's relationship? I watched a video of one of your speeches where you talked about his impact on you. Are there any lessons that he gave you that you passed on as you were coaching or to your kids? Absolutely. And he instilled faith in me. My grandfather had a menswear store and he never sold the clothes. He sold himself. And he taught me how to shake hands firmly, look people in the eye, yes or no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, open doors for people, even when they didn't want it, because it's the right thing to do. At 6'3 and 260, he was an imposing figure, but his heart was amazing. And the fact that he was my father's father shocked me, because when I went to Brownwood at 15, I thought, here we go, going to be the same thing, man. I'm going to get hit and cursed at and everything else. And when I walked into my grandparents' house, I had two rules. If you do it, own it, own it and move on. And if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said because the truth doesn't change unless you're in Washington. And, but my grandparents were the best couple I've ever known in my life. My grandmother worked at our Methodist church there for 30 years. And together he had me take my grandmother on lunch dates. He wanted me not only to be a good man, but a good human. And I think, one of the biggest lessons I learned from him was one day this lady walks in the store and she has on overalls and boots and a straw hat and the smell of the boots. She had a pig farm, obviously. All the men who worked for him around his age looked up from their coffee at the back of the store and ignored her. She did not exist. My grandfather, Ernest, saw this. He gets up, he goes out and treats her like she should be treated. And before she left, she bought 15 suits for every male in her family in cash. And then a couple of years later, underneath that pig farm, they have something that, like they like to call natural gas. And she ended up being worth like $780 million. But she came back to that store whenever she wanted clothes for her men and her boys because of my grandfather. After she left the store that day, he walked back by me and he said, Jimmy, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter what language you speak. He said, if you cut us open, we are the same color. We all bleed red. He goes, don't ever, ever treat anybody differently than you'd want your grandmother treated. And that stuck with me. And 
just one of the best hearts I've ever seen in my life. And he knew everybody. Gene Autry came in one day from California to hang out with my grandfather. They knew each other from World War II. Tom Landry come down and buy a hat and then wear it on the sidelines. My grandfather loved the Cowboys when Tom Landry was a coach. I mean, just classy, classy people. And if we get into the faith aspect of it, my grandparents, while the church was still being religious, my grandparents showed grace and compassion to everybody they met. Thanksgiving dinners, Christmas presents for families that couldn't own it. They'd pay a bill for somebody just to keep their dream going on a little bit longer. And they didn't want anybody to know. They just wanted people to be able to dream. And I think the most important saying he ever had, and it's, it's a two-part thing. You go to the secular world, you go, remember who you are. Don't do anything you wouldn't have anybody see you do. Because it's not what you do when you know people are watching that makes you who you are. It's what you do when nobody's watching you at all. That makes you who you are. He said, Jimmy, that's character. Remember who you are and whose you are. So for the faith people, the whose you are is obvious. And he just wanted me to keep my faith in line with my life. And in three years, my grandparents taught me a lot. And I watched my grandfather carry people on his shoulders in Brownwood and the state of Texas. And then I watched my grandfather go through ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease and lead people from a wheelchair. I mean, just, he's the mentor of my life. He's my dream maker. Going off of dream maker. Can you tell us a little bit about your book that was recently released dream maker? Absolutely. 20 years in the making, we never had an ending and, and I'll get to that in a second, but for 20 years, people have gone, we love the story. We love the movie. Dennis did a great job. What have you done since? So this answers everything. And I, I nail it down with dream makers is the people you want to surround yourself with to be the best you, you can possibly be. Along the lines with that, I have dream killers, the people who want to see you fail because they've either tried to do something and they failed at it or they're too afraid to try. So those are the people we want away from us. We want the dream makers around us like my grandparents, my high school team. And we want to move on and have the best people around us at all times because we may reach a dream that we didn't even know we wanted if you surround yourself with really good people. And so we wrote it in that it, the book is laid out in the format like I'm on stage. And my mother-in-law read it and she goes, I feel like Jimmy is sitting right here in the living room talking to me. And that's how we wanted it to be. It's got humor. It's got grace. It's got humiliation. Walked away from baseball in 2001 with the Dodgers because in five days I went from throwing 100 to not being able to judge a ball hit back at me. And I did not want to throw a ball 100 and get it hit back at me 110. I mean, five days it changed. The guy who was a coach and taught kids how to bunt couldn't even put a bat on the ball. I couldn't catch the ball with my bat. I couldn't bunt in five days. And so I walked away over the next 20 years, 58 surgeries, constantly on painkillers because you're, you're injured or you're getting surgery or you're getting over-surgery. And you're still in pain, you're diagnosed with Parkinson's, and now you're going to have a deep brain stimulator put in, and you're still in pain, you're having six month long headaches at a time. So I started drinking. At 52, I end up in rehab. And it's all laid out there. I am perfectly honest in this book. Haven't touched alcohol in over three and a half years, don't care to. And five weeks ago, this Friday, I had my deep brain stimulator pulled out. I no longer have Parkinson's. So God gave us two innings. We've got the rehab, 
chapter nine. And I think that's going to help a lot of people because they need to know that people go through this stuff and they, they need to go, you know what, I'm going to quit putting so much pressure on myself because stuff happens and things happen. And sometimes people need help for the first time in my life at 52, I got to concentrate on me for 35 days and I got to set myself up and sort myself out. And I will tell you my counselor who was a pastor pulled me into his office my fifth day there And this guy loves baseball. He has mementos from every major league team because he's been to every stadium. And I sit down, he goes, great story. Why are you here? And I said, I lost my faith. I quit. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I said, I know Jesus is with me and all. And I said, he's right beside me the whole time. I said, but I just... I'm not trying to live anymore. I'm just getting through. He said, let me ask you a question. If you have Jesus in the same car as you, why is he not driving? And for some reason that clicked with me and I never detoxed. I didn't get sick. There were people having stuff come out of both ends. We had plastic on our mattresses. It was the last resort for the last resort. Walked out three days after rehab. I do a speech in Minneapolis. I walk back behind the stage in the green room. Every type of liquor known to man is out on a table and open. And the people are like, hey, drink. Everybody else has been all day. And I'm like, you know what? I'm good. And um, never been tempted again. And then we get to the faith chapter. And that's when um, not trying to get too deep or two sideways on you guys, but I have a group of ladies at church and I call them my girls and I call them my girls for a reason. They're 50 to 90 and they've prayed for me through all these surgeries. They've prayed for me through rehab. They've prayed for me for the headaches and the Parkinson's and everything else that's gone on. Now they want me to call them my girls. They're not ladies. They're not women. They're my girls. And you know what? Some incredible things happen. So the faith chapter in the book, chapter 10, kind of lays it out there. And there's a feather on the front for a reason. And let's just say I was healed. And my neurologist has no idea why. She said, nobody, nobody ever gets well from Parkinson's. Did brain scans, had to drink all the nuclear stuff so they could take pictures of my head again. Your dopamine is fine. We don't know what's going on. You don't have it. Did all the physical tests. I can write again. I can button my shirts. I can walk. I can run. And then three years ago, I had a cane that my mom bought me to walk around the block. And now I'm running five to eight miles a day. I mean, I am healed. And so my neurosurgeon, who also is a man of faith, he pulled out my deep brain stimulator five weeks ago. And I've been perfectly fine since. Now, some people think I'm not fine, but that's a mental problem, not a Parkinson's problem. But you know what? I'm perfectly healthy and I'm stronger than I have. I'm probably in better shape now than I was when I played ball. So just an incredible testimony of the power of prayer. That's amazing. And, and I don't know if I could, you know, end it on any, or ask to end it on anything better. We're, we're so glad that you're healthy and 
you know that even though you got to share your your difficulties even though you know people see the movie the rookie and think you know everything must have must have just gone great this guy had such a, a gift and had a second chance at baseball but not everyone gets to see you know the story afterwards and so we're glad you had the chance to, to come on and share that with us i found it personally inspiring and i know everyone listening is gonna gonna find it inspiring as well so thank i, I want to thank you for being open and honest with us and and for overall just coming on and talking to us about your story today Absolutely. Can I say one more thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dennis Quaid wrote the foreword for the book. And my wife kept going, and my author, who helped me write the book, he goes, why don't you call Dennis? And I'm like, I don't want to bug Dennis about this stuff. He goes, just see if you'll read it and write a little something, you know, so we can go, hey, Dennis liked it. And he ends up writing the foreword. My wife calls him. He goes, I'd love to do that writes the forward. He's been through the same thing I've been through. And we all go through difficult times. Let's face it, 2020 suck. 2021, hopefully we'll get to go. You know what? <laughs> we came up the hill a little bit. We got out of that valley. And I just want everybody to understand that we all have problems, we all have issues, but if we keep thinking positively, we keep moving forward and we don't stop. Keep dreaming, keep moving, and the dream you start chasing may not be the one you end up loving the most. That's what I want to leave you guys with. That's an amazing sentiment. So we, we want to thank you again for, for sharing that with us and sharing your time with us today. Yes, sir. Thank you.